Welcome to episode 234 of Destination Linux. Whether you're brand new to open source or a guru of sudo, this is the podcast for you. My name is Michael, and with me today are Jill, Ryan, and Noah. And on this week's episode of DL, we have an exciting interview lined up for you with Nico from Garuda Linux. Then we cover the controversial situation around the audio editor Audacity and their new desktop privacy policy. Plus, we have our tips, tricks, and software picks. All this and so much more coming up right now on Destination Linux. So just a quick reminder, today is the DLN Extended After Show that we talked about for the past couple of weeks. So that's happening right after the show when we get done with recording DL. So be sure to stick around after the show because this this Extended After Show is open to everyone. We will have a link in the DLN forums at dlnforum.com. That will be, it's not there right now just yet, but it will be posted as soon as the show is over. You can go there and click the link to join us in the Zoom room. Uh, and also mark your calendars for Sunday, August 22nd, because at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, or 1900 UTC, we're going to have a huge Lugfest slash GameFest. That's right, we are bringing back both of them, the Lugfest and the GameFest, and we're going to combine it together to make a mega event. And this event is going to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Linux kernel. And we mm -hmm. can't wait to hang out with all of you, so make sure to mark it on your calendars. In the community feedback this week, Biku writes us to say, Hi there, Ryan, Michael, Jill, and Noah, and also the rest of the Destination Linux network. I'm a new listener here. Uh, episode 230 was my first taste of DL. Really impressive show. Enjoyed it totally. I personally never used Chromium-based browsers for a variety of reasons. I'll always been a fan and regular user of Firefox. And for the past few years, I've also used a browser called SeaMonkey. So it, it's built on top of the same source code used by Mozilla Firefox. The main difference lies in the user interface language. CMonkey still uses Zool or XUL, while Firefox currently uses Web Extensions API. In my opinion, the biggest selling point of, C, of CMonkey is is not it's not the browser necessarily. It's a internet application suite. It comes with an internet browser, of course, but also email and news client news group client web feed reader, HTML editor, IRC chat, web development tools, and more stuff. UI is a bit old school though, but once you get used to it, you won't go back any you won't go back anyway. And it's fully functional and intuitive. He also makes mention of uh, other uh, suggestions like uh, Falcon and that kind of thing. And I'm, I'm very curious what people think about SeaMonkey because it's been a very long time since I've even heard of SeaMonkey because it's been, uh, it's been around for quite a bit. But I honestly, I kind of thought it was no longer being maintained. So it's really interesting to see that it's still being, uh, being developed. So that's great to see. So I'm curious, uh, Jill, what do you think about this particular suggestion? <laughs> well, well, this was really cool. It's been a while since I've used SeaMonkey, and so thank you, Biku, for reminding me about it. I started using it again this week for doing show notes and fell in love with it once again because of your email. Thank you so much. And actually, I remember using SeaMonkey years ago when it came out in 2006 or so on Debian, and you know, I continue to continued to use it for my email when the Firefox web browser and Thunderbird Mail became separate projects. That was one of the reasons why SeaMonkey came to be. So they were filling that gap that everyone missed of, you know, a kind of an all-in-one complete package, but they they took it even further to to include chat and lots of optimizations that Firefox didn't have. And what's really cool is the SeaMonkey composer 
is is just so easy to use. It's a, a WYSIWYG a way to create uh, web pages. And I had used that in the past. So it was nice to, to revisit it. It's just been really, really fun. And I actually love the sea monkey theme. It looks very classic Netscape and old school Firefox. Only you, Jill. Yeah. Um, yeah. I actually Only love it. It yeah. looks really, really dated to me, but I, I felt like when I was looking at the screenshots, I was like, oh my God, I had this feeling that came in of AOL. I'm not joking. I'm not making uh, yes. that up. I instantly was like, yeah. oh my gosh, this was what it looked like when you would open a browser back in the day with AOL. Yeah. And that's, I mean, look, I it, it looks like some people in our chat are saying that it's still maintained, but you know, it, it could use some assistance and, and help there in some areas. Uh, and that's what I saw. I like the idea of combining all these services. I think it's super mm -hmm. cool. I think mm -hmm. people should go check it out. Maybe it's worth reviving something like this in the future. The reason why I typically don't recommend these type of browsers is one, I don't know the maintenance schedule, how many people are really still working on this. And you don't want to mess mm -hmm. around with a browser that's not ultra, ultra secure, right? That somebody's looking at all elements of all the time. And number two, I'm generally trying to get people to use open source and it's really hard if they haven't heard of the company before. The good thing about Firefox is I can go recommend it on my channel. Everybody's kind of heard of it and at least get reminded of it and knows of its existence. Whereas SeaMonkey and Falcon and other things are fantastic, but they're more of those who are deep into the open source Linux world are going to find them and fall in love versus something I would necessarily go tell everybody if you're brand new to go check out. But it's interesting. It definitely gave me um, some throwback moments looking at that UI. Yeah. Well, you know what's also really neat is a lot of browsers are trying to do this again, become the all-in-one suite like Vivaldi and mm -hmm. Opera. So it's it, it's made a resurgence again. So you know people like to have an all-in-one suite, and they're not relying on proprietary like Google. But so, one of the things that I liked about. Yeah. Um, uh, liked about uh, Opera back in the day was that it did this all-in-one suite, uh, and then that's yeah. what. And then when they, uh, you know, sold Opera and started making Vivaldi, I was kind of expecting them to eventually do that. So it was interesting that they started <laughs> doing that too. Uh, and yeah. th this is interesting, especially what uh, Ryan said about the AOL thing. Uh, yeah. As soon as you mentioned that, I, th I, th I just thought you've got browser. Yeah. And so uh, it's 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 definitely a, a a cool combination of like all the different tools. I like the idea of having all these in one suite and it, it does look a little bit dated. So, um, you know, Zool is an interesting language and one of the reasons why, uh, you know, people had a, a an issue with the updates for Firefox a couple of years ago was because of the change away from Zool. So for those who are interested in that kind of thing, it might be something to check out. Well, one of the cool things actually is that SeaMonkey, the reason it's called that is because that was the, the what the developers gave the project name for Netscape Navigator 5. It was oh. called SeaMonkey. Did not know that. that. Nice. <laughs> A little trivia there for trivia night. <laughs> I will write that down. <laughs> We love hearing from our worldwide community. That's you. And what we want you to do is uh, connect with us. We want you to find your nearest tool, sit down, send an email to comments at destinationlinux.org. If you'd like to be connected to the community, then we invite you to join our community discussion forums. You can visit dlnform.com to participate.
This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new managed MongoDB service, which is a fully managed database service. It's known as Database as a Service, and they're creative with the naming. The, the managed MongoDB service allows you to focus more on building scalable high-performance apps and less time on maintaining the database. You simply offload that work and the administration to DigitalOcean. Let them handle all the provisioning, the managing, the scaling, the updates, the backups, all the things that you have to do that you don't want to do, but you have to do it, let DigitalOcean and their team of experts do that. They have it down to a fine science. DigitalOcean built uh, this service with the partnership mm -hmm. with MongoDB in mind. And so that means together they've made sure that you're going to get access to all of the latest releases of MongoDB and, and the database as they become available. Now, it gets even better because you're a listener of this show, because you listen and participate in the Destination Linux community and you're a member here, you can get started for free. Actually, it's even better for free. DigitalOcean is going to give you they give us money. They give somebody, somebody's giving somebody money, but you're going to get it. That's the bottom line. And all you have to do is go to do. It changed. You go to do.co slash dln dash mongo. That's a new address. Do.co slash dln dash mongo. And that will get you started for free. You'll get that $100 credit when you go to do.co slash dln dash mongo. Again, do.co slash dln dash mongo and get started with your free $100 credit on DigitalOcean's new managed MongoDB. And a huge thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. Today, we have a guest with us who is not only a Linux enthusiast, but also a developer on Garuda Linux and a maintainer of the chaotic AUR. We've seen a lot of positive publicity around Garuda, so we couldn't wait to get to you know meet one of the members and have them on the show. So, Nico, welcome to the Destination Linux podcast. Thanks for having me. So, the first thing we like to do is learn about your like the journey for our guest and their journey into Linux. So, can you tell us how did your Linux journey begin for you? All right. So, my Linux journey um, began about two years ago, I'd say. I've been in contact with Linux at the age of about 50. And that was when a classmate of mine uh, gave me a CD with OpenSUSE on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I was playing around with it. It had a KDE desktop on it. And I was pretty uh, fascinated by um, the customizability and the desktop effects of KDE. It's pretty amazing. And um, I didn't really stay on Linux because I gamed a lot at this time and my games wouldn't really run on Linux at that time. So I was staying on Windows. <laughs> That's a really so, interesting point right there. So mm -hmm. you, you started, you got this CD, it was OpenSUSE, you really loved it, you liked the customization, you liked KDE, which makes Michael happy, of course, because he's the biggest KDE fan. Oh yeah. <laughs> yep. and, and, you but had me at gaming, KDE. Gaming was the thing that took you back to Windows. You're like, yes. I'm not going to be able to use Linux because I can't game anymore. Okay, <laughs> That's pretty interesting because a lot of people who aren't gamers sometimes wonder, why do I always get on this high horse about gaming? And that's one of those reasons because there's a lot of people who are very talented developers and things that you know at the time will ignore Linux because they're doing work in Windows and they want to be also video play video games at the end and so they stay in the same operating system. So what brought you back then from your Windows journey into coming back to Linux? Yeah, so uh, about two years ago, I had a time where I didn't have a work and uh, I looked for things to do. And Linux was quite the thing I needed at that time, I say, <laughs> because um, I was disrupting and trying out a lot of discos out there. 
Well, since then I tried every major distro exam and also exotic ones like Void and Bedrock. <laughs> you might know these. And that was pretty much the reason uh, why I really got invested in Linux because it, there was so much that one could do. A lot of things to change and the system could really be mine. That's something uh, which couldn't be uh, done on Windows because it's just locked in. With Linux, it's just like can do everything you want and just customize the system you want. And that's more or less uh, the time when I started loving Linux. <laughs> so are you still a gamer today? Um, actually, I'm not. No. <laughs> you don't game anymore at all, huh? <laughs> I don't and, and now Linux can game all. better than ever. That's crazy. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe now he doesn't have time since he's in developing yeah. Garuda. <laughs> well, so, that's also a factor, of course, yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so tell me how Garuda Linux came into existence. You started with Linux, you found Linux, you thought it was awesome, but you were gaming, so you went back to Windows, and then you went back to Linux. And then at some point, rather recently, in Linux world anyways, you decided, I'm going to create my own distro. So how did Garuda Linux come into existence? Um, so there were custom Manjaro builds out there for quite some time. It was actually made by our founder. Well, it had all the features which Garuda had nowadays, uh, like ButterFS snapshots, which was quite innovative at that time for me. Um, and it had all the stuff like I would install myself at my Arch Linux machine. So I stayed, uh, well, I stayed for Garuda. And, um, since the repo structure of Manjaro was not quite a thing uh, that we wanted to have uh, or our founder wanted to have, it was rebased for Arch, which has always the latest software available, which is quite nice. <laughs> That's, well, more or less the story. <laughs> the goal was to create a gaming edition. And do you know Sparky Linux? Oh, yeah. We know Sparky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Sparky's great. Yeah, so the goal was to create um, something like Sparky Linux, but uh, with KDE and with Archbase rather than Debian. So um, that's why another, um, well, distribution was created. Very nice. Cool, Nico. So what are some of the features that make Garuda stand out from the other Archbase distros that are available? So what makes Garuda special? That's quite a question. Um, you know, usually Archbase distros are more or less very self-made. You got to do all of the stuff yourself or mostly do stuff yourself, system maintenance and all such things. Um, that might be not easy for um, people who are just beginning to, uh, well, start with Linux. Might be overwhelming, in fact. And um, that's why we have made some well, applications or tweaks to help people out, um, starting with Arch Linux, because it's a great distribution. It's I, I really like its features. Also, Pacman is a great package mm. manager. It's easy. Yeah. And um, so um, that's more or less the goal, to make it easy. Um, you know, Garuda Assistant uh, was yes. created for that purpose. Well, a lot of options or uh, system maintenance tasks, which would normally uh, be done by the user himself, can just be done using the ruler assistant. So if you, for example, had a problem um, with updates or something like that, and 
your database of Pacman is locked, you can just go to the Ruder Assistant and unlock the database using uh, a toggle. So that's really easy. I think Ruder Assistant kind of staying on that is one of the standout features. There's obviously other things here, but to me, the Assistant is so well done. Um, we've seen assistants kind of start. I remember early on in my Linux years, this is, I guess, what, four years ago or so now, assistants weren't in every distro. You weren't seeing them everywhere. Now you see them more often, but not all of them are all that helpful assistants. They're, they're yeah. kind of like the assistants on your phone <laughs> that they only work half the time. Yeah. Uh, but Garuda Assistant actually works really, really well. I'll give you some examples. I wanted to switch from Pulse to Pipewire. It was one checkbox. Click, boom, it's done. You're switched over. I wanted to uh, make changes to the kernel that I want to use. It's one box, click, choose your kernel, you're done. You want to install packages. It walks you through all the categories of packages that you may want from office through to gaming stuff, sound, everything in between. You check the packages as soon as it starts up, it installs them all, boom, you're done. It's a very powerful tool that you all created. And I have to ask, because of the fact that you're obviously experienced enough to set up your own Arch, you're obviously experienced enough to set up your own packages, probably set up your own script so it does it all for you. Why did you decide to take the time to build an assistant for people who are brand new to Linux? I did a lot of work I mean, um, with my own machine, but it didn't really feel good all the time. I mean, it was fun, and, uh, all, but I wanted to create something for people. So... Um, the time when I distro hopped a lot. So there were a lot of distros and I wanted, when I didn't know how to set up stuff, I really wanted something which just satisfied my needs. And well, there wasn't really a distro out there which satisfied all my needs. So for all the people who are like me or maybe want something or system like I do, it's really a nice thing to work on such a system for people, not just for myself. And that's what I really like about it. That's also what I like about open source because you can just take stuff, alter it, and put it out there for other people. It's yeah, powerful. that is awesome. And nice. the the Garuda assistance is a is a really nice thing to see uh, in a in any distribution, any kind of assistance tool. Like there are some welcome tools that are you know fairly good, but this one goes above and beyond. It does a lot of cool stuff. And I also like the fact that you have the Zen kernel and ButterFS use, uh, especially the ButterFS. I'm a big fan of that. Uh, but there's also the chaotic AUR. Could you tell us in our audience about that? Because the the name makes me curious. Like, what exactly? Like, how did it get the name chaotic, and what does it do? Um, so chaotic AUR is pretty much a user repository of Arch, which people can use. Um, we provide pre-built binaries for all kind of stuff which is on the AOR. So the AOR is a pretty nice thing, in my opinion. It's like one of the killer features of Arch, to be honest, because you don't really need to search for software yourself. You can just go to the AOR and type in a search and just get your application usually. Of course, you have to do some uh, reviews of package builds and such stuff because, I mean, it's a user repository and um, package builds aren't really that good sometimes. So that's like a thing, but it's really cool because a lot of things get offered there. There might also be, uh, I mean, huge applications like browsers. Uh, let's take that as example. Um, for people like me who have quite weak machines to work on, browsers take ages to compile. Like Firefox takes sure. four to six hours on my machine to compile. 
And that's quite a heavy task on, well, yeah. <laughs> it takes a lot of time. And um, the thing about chaotic AOR is people can request packages from the AOR to be built there. I don't know how much packages we have currently. I think about 2,000, and, but I'm not sure right now. Mm. Um, the thing is that we provide these packages pre-compiled, so people can just add the chaotic AOR and use those packages. So Nice. So it's kind of like an overlay system. Can you talk a little bit about the performance optimization of Garuda? Can you talk a little bit about what the Zen kernel is and how that helps with performance? Um, so the Zen kernel is more or less the kernel which has performance enhanced. Well, the kernel hackers which uh, wanted to write the best kernel for everyday systems created the Zen kernel, in fact. And um, well, there's already, uh, also Licorix kernel for Debian, which is more or less the same thing, but it uses another um, CPU uh, scheduler. The Zen kernel on Arch is more or less the same kernel, but it uses the default uh, CPU um, scheduler. But it was more or less tuned for higher throughput and uh, lower latency, which makes it okay. perfect for, well, desktop systems where people want to game. So, I um, see. yeah. Also, it provides uh, some patches with uh, which help with gaming. So CPU usage while gaming would be lower than when using the default kernel, so to say. The power usage would, of course, be higher then because it's tuned for higher performance, which makes it less optimal for laptops, you could say, if you are on battery. But for gaming, it's really optimal, I'd say. So, Nico, can you talk a little bit about additional customizations that are, are, are happening in Gruda? Is it, is it just the kernel optimizations or are there other things that you've done to enhance the optimization? Not only the kernel optimizations that we are doing. Actually, we are doing quite a lot of stuff to enhance performance, which other distributions might not do. One thing, for example, is ZRAM. So ZRAM is uh, more or less compressed space in RAM. That has the advantage of more RAM, so to say, being available for the system to use hmm. um, because it's compressed. So that might actually uh, cause a bit of higher CPU usage, but in fact, you have a lot of more RAM to use, which is good. Um, so you can stuff. download RAM. All these years, people were making fun of <laughs> and in fact, you can download it. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you can say that. Yeah. It's, an, it's a special exclusive here. You heard it first. <laughs> Well, you can make a RAM disk on, in Gerudo Linux if you want to. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, other things that we do are, for example, um, there are some daemons that we use, like MemoryLD or PreLogD. Um, you might not have heard of these before, but they are uh, more or less used to provide better system responsivity under low memory situations, I'd say. Um, so if you run low on RAM, these are more or less causing the, the system to be more responsive by providing more RAM to use. I mean, one of them locks RAM, so uh, locks important binaries in RAM. So these are always available, even in low memory situations. And another thing which we do is shipping no-hang, which is also uh, related to RAM. Usually when you run, uh, run out of RAM, uh, RAM, so your system would usually freeze a lot. And this is something which helps um, with the freezing as it kills the application, which causes the 
out of memory situation. So it's more responsive than other systems. You know, okay. was there a, you guys, we talked earlier about the Calamari's installer that you're using there. There was a difference in Garuda that I noticed between other Arch-based distros that use Calamari's, and that comes in with the NVIDIA portion of it. I don't remember the exact terminology, but essentially Garuda just in the Calamari's installer calls out, do you want to use the non-proprietary open source drivers? Or do you want to use NVIDIA drivers? Whereas other Calamari's installers will just say, do you want to use proprietary or the non-proprietary, which somebody mm -hmm. who's new or even semi-experienced, that made no sense to me when I got into Linux. I was like, what are they talking about? Proprietary, non-proprietary drivers here. Was that a something you had noticed from the community and optimization or change that you made in Calamari's? Or how did that come about? Um, so actually, um, the setting comes from Manjaro. We more or less adopted it for uh, Arch Linux. I don't even know if it was a community thing, um, but we recently noticed that that would better for users. So easier to understand. I mean, the whole thing about Garuda is being user-friendly. Right. And, um, so that was a thing to change, of course. I wonder if it's because I whined to Philip that one time on, when he was on the show, Michael. <laughs> now could I need to go back to Philip and ask him that if I'm the it. reason why they did that. Because I remember complaining about that to him. Um, there are many types of desktop environments. Speaking of new users, there's a couple different versions of Garuda Linux. You have the KDE, of course, which we know Michael's going to like, blah, 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 blah. But blah, blah, got, blah. How dare you? <laughs> you have things like Black Arch and Gaming Edition for people who don't know, because funny enough, I covered this in my video and I kept getting the question in my comments, what's the difference between mm -hmm. the versions? So even though for those of us who've been in Linux for a while, we know what Black Arch and stuff off the top of our head, but just for our audience, in case their new members are interested in Garuda, what do you do differently in KDE Dragonized as an example versus KDE and then just quickly on the Black Arch and Gaming Edition? So the Dragonized editions, uh, we got three of them in total now. It was one at the beginning. But basically, we noticed that we could do other things with it as well because people apparently liked it. It was visually attractive and so mm -hmm. a good base to build on. So the regular edition, which doesn't have any special name on <laughs> it, um, that's basically the base edition, you could call it. The Black Arch edition itself is, well, for pen testers or people who want to get into pen testing because it features the Black Arch repository. And Black Arch repository is like the Arch version of Kali Linux. This version ships the repo plus a lot of applications which are commonly used pen testers out of the box. Um, the gaming edition itself has a lot of stuff in it, actually. Uh, a lot of people might call it loaded because of that, <laughs> um, because it really has all the stuff which basically is, exists concerning gaming um, on Linux in it. So if you want to show off some stuff concerning gaming to everyone, you can just install the gaming edition. Also for people who do not really know about Linux gaming, it's, I'd say, a good starting point because mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff is already pre-installed. So there's no need to search for whatever application is available. So what are my options? It's already there. You don't have to search for it. It's just 
Or is it that? Yes. Yeah. The, the Garuda gaming assistant is brilliant, by the way. That's really awesome. For, so even if you don't have the get the gaming edition, it's easy to install the applications like Lutris and Steam. Yeah. And it's very like nice. The point where everything is just in one place. And that was important for us. So, Nico, some people are concerned with using an Arch-based distro because of its rolling updates. How does your implementation of ButterFS and Snapshots help alleviate some of the concern? So, usually people say that Arch Linux-based distributions are quite heavy to deal with because of those rolling release updates, well, that it might break and stuff like that. But here is more or less the place where our snapshots come into play because Whenever you update your system, before the update, a snapshot is taken. And that automatically, nothing, no intervention needed. And it would also um, be presented when starting up the system at Grub, so the bootloader, would already have the snapshots in it. So that's a really nice thing about it. You just update your system, have maybe a bad update, reboot, and find your system broken. Then you can just boot into a working snapshot and continue the work after restoring the snapshot to an earlier state. It's very cool. So, the, the way it, it reminds me kind of like the a combination of the way that OpenSUSE does it with Tumbleweed and the way that Arch does it, like kind of merging those two things together, especially with the ButterFS thing. Uh, I'm curious, uh, what made you want, uh, use TimeShift versus like trying to use Snapper and, and that, for that kind of thing? The layout for ButterFS was in fact taken from OpenSUSE. <laughs> we adopted that. Um, but TimeShift seems to be a more workable solution for people who just started with uh, stuff. To me, it's also easier to use because it explained better than themselves. So do you know what I mean? Yeah, it just yes, the GUI is way simpler in TimeShift, yeah. in my yeah, opinion, as well exactly to navigate to through. So it should be easy for people who are just starting. They should not be searching for how to use it there yeah. and ready to be used. Yeah, I was impressed about, you know, every time I, I've done probably about 20 different updates on this laptop and it, you know, there's an image there every time, a snapshot. It's great. <laughs> Very cool. It's really handy, yes. <laughs> it saved me a lot of times already, actually. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I, I noticed something on your on your website about the Garuda Cloud service. I'm curious, what is yeah. that? What does that entail? And also, are there any other services that your your team is exploring? Garuda Cloud service is actually Next Cloud, um, which is reskin for Garuda. The thing is, when I started um, getting into Garuda, um, I was pretty into self-hosting stuff and was really interested in uh, FOSS alternatives to proprietary ones. I had the goal to show the people what alternatives are there, more or less. So, for example, Nextcloud is a really good alternative to, for example, Google. So you could sync contacts and stuff like that without really using proprietary services. Our search engines, like we are using search, search as search engine, for example. Um, and it's there to show the people what alternatives are there. So we want to bring force to people, free open source software. What is that? So we want to show the people what is already there. So that's that was more or less the motivation to um, set those up. But the cloud, we explored actually... Um, Sustaining that service, we have already about 1k signups for that service, and we might even 
well, set it up for more users in the future. But that's something we have to investigate more. Wow. So you set that up as a test. You got over a thousand people signing up for it. I tried to sign up for it, so I'd have been a thousand one. But I think mm-hmm. you guys are still in the testing phase. But is this a great... No, they saw you trying to sign up. Like, no, 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 no. They, they no. <laughs> is this an option? I, I think this is a brilliant way to not only, like you said, I know your primary motivation is to kind of show off the capabilities of this open source software, which is brilliant. I love that. But is this also a way that you could monetize, right? And and have some people paying, obviously, because we have to pay for monthly subscriptions for online services anyways in the future where you'd pay, you know, some money monthly to Garuda in order to sustain a cloud service like that? Because obviously that's not free. Well, that's actually an idea we had earlier. Um, but we didn't really get to, uh, I mean, discuss it a lot until now because there were other important things to do. Um, but so far it has been working pretty well. So I've been personally using it since existence and I think other people do as well. So if there is demand, we might actually provide such a service in the future. So Nico, there's somebody out there and they're listening to this interview and they're going, man, I want to get involved with this project. This is really fantastic. I had no idea that this kind of thing was being done in Linux. How can people get involved in the project and what kind of help are you looking for from the community right now? So that's the nice thing about open source. You can just examine all the stuff we have, maybe do some things, what to do better. You can, for example, create a pull request at our GitLab. I mean, it would be better to talk about, uh, talk to us first before doing that. We are really open for ideas. And if there's something to do, just mention it. We are really open for that. Is the best place your Git uh, lab or your forums that you're on? Because I know I posted um, stuff to the forums and uh, I got nice response, nice quick response. Yeah, actually, What's your um, the best place to um, put ideas is the forum, actually, because, I mean, we have GitLab and people also use GitLab to um, create issues. That's not a problem, but um, the primary part of our team is actually only active in the forum and not at GitLab. So it's a better idea to post in the forum because our team is just yeah, complete there. So mm-hmm. lightning round here, Garuda is not just, you're not a sole developer on this. There's eight of you, correct? Main yeah. developers? Exactly. And then you have the community as well. I, I have to ask, are you surprised by how popular Garuda has become? At least in the last few months, there must be over a dozen YouTube videos created. It's all over social media. Everybody's mm-hmm. talking about Garuda Linux, even in our own forums. Are you surprised by how it's picked up? Uh, actually, yes, completely. <laughs> <laughs> I still can't believe how popular this got. So when I started out and joined the team, there were like 20 people in the Telegram group. The forum didn't even, I'm not even sure if the forum existed at that time. Well, there weren't really much people using Garuda at that time. So the evolution or development which happened uh, during that time it's really incredible and also the feedback of the community and uh, users of us so it's all incredible and i'm really thankful for the people well helping out in our forum helping out with coding and all the stuff it's an incredible journey so to say and it has just begun i'd say Awesome. It is very impressive. Like the fact that it's been, you know, uh, roughly seven months since people even heard of it and it's already gotten to the size that it has. It is, uh, it is very cool. And I do like the fact that, you know, uh, Jill mentioned the design of the Dragon Eyes layout and that sort of stuff with the cyberpunk thing. And uh, is, 
Uh, is the people involved in making the sweet theme, or are they related to Garuda anyway, or is it uh, just y'all just wanted to use that theme? So the sweet theme um, happened to be created before Garuda, of course. Right. Um, it was, yeah, I don't think that the developers really, <laughs> I don't know if he knows that uh, it's being used in our distribution. Yeah, but it does now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the only thing which we do different than uh, the three theme, uh, theme itself is that we ship different icons. So um, the icon pack which we use is the beauty line icon pack. Mm -hmm. And we also altered that to have a lot more icons uh, than it had before so that the system feels really consistent. And that has been a really great motivation of mine to make it cons consistent. Usually there isn't much consistency in Linux out there or at least i didn't really feel like themes were consistent so yeah. depending on the theme thing. i'd have to agree and that's a lot yeah. of themes really but it's really nice to see that you're you're doing the extra work on the sweet stuff because i think the sweet package is is very uh, sweet <laughs> anyway uh, <laughs> uh, it's it's <laughs> it's really nice to see it and when i when i first saw garuda i was like oh Sweet. That I'm surprised that no one has used this 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 theme and this icon set before or whatever. It was just it was is really nice to see it was used because it's been around for quite a while and it's really, it's really nice. And uh, Nico, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Mm -hmm. We appreciate the work that you and the Garuda team are doing, along with all the contributors to Garuda as well and uh, the community around it. It's very interesting, and we're definitely going to be uh, looking you know looking forward to see what's happening with the the distribution. And we hope to have you back on in the show real soon. Thanks. Again, for coming on Destination Linux. Thanks for inviting me. It has been a pleasure. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. Bitwarden is an awesome piece of software. It is password manager that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do that? Well, Bitwarden provides the tools to store all of your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords or passphrases for you, and even automatically fill those passwords in in login forms so you don't have to do any of that either. You can access your data across many different types of devices like your web browser, your mobile apps, your desktop applications, and even on the command line. Also, Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end -end encryption before it ever leaves your devices. So that means that it, when, it go, when it leaves your devices, it becomes this giant mountain of gibberish. So there's no way anybody could check out your data. And you are the only person who has the key to decrypt it. And therefore, you're the only person with access to your data, provided you don't share the passwords in one of their organizational awesome services because they have a family plan. They have have business plans. They have enterprise plans. And in fact, the business enterprise plans also has extra features where you can help your uh, your employees get started with their account because they can have a personal account, also organizational vault access, and so much cool stuff that you can do with these different organizational plans. And the family plan, I just got to tell you, I've I, the family plan is so nice. I set it up with my family and anytime I need to help someone with their passwords, like my mom or my, bro my brothers or sister and stuff like that, it just it's easy to say, Oh well, here you go, and just hand them the password. That so because it's it's basically a sharing system through the organization, and it is so nice. You go to bitwarden.com/dln to get started, and then I mentioned you can get started for free. 
Well, you can, but I also think you want to check out the premium accounts because it starts at less than dollar per month. That's right. For just $10 per year, you get one gigabyte encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, priority customer service, and so much more. So make the smart move like many of the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring Destination Linux. All right, so this week, Michael, Noah, Jill, there's been something all the buzz. I know Michael and Noah know about this, of course, because you guys covered it on your I, I could. I can't imagine what this could be. What, what, <laughs> yeah. what are we going to talk about right now? I'm talking about <laughs> Audacity. Now, Audacity to me is one of the most important open source projects out there. I When I talk about, when I'm telling somebody about how awesome open source can be, Audacity is one of the programs I'll mention along with OBS, along with Blender and those things. But Audacity is one of those kind of premium open source applications that prove it can be better done better in the open source world. So what's happened this week is, well, a complete mess and disaster at the end of the day, trying to follow all of the developer forums, all of the comments, all of the drama has been insane to say the least. But at the end of the day, Audacity was purchased by a company called the Muse Group. The promise from the Muse Group is that they were committed to keeping Audacity free and open source and nothing's changed with that portion of the promise. However, there have been some changes to the privacy policy, also the contributors agreement, which have got people really upset. It's got them upset because of the first iterations of these messages going out to the community, sounding like they're going to be capturing tons of data and potentially selling it. Then they did clarifications that also weren't really clear either on what they're going to be doing uh, with the different data collections. And then you have people forking the projects and people who are forking them getting threats against them. And there, there's just so much chaos here going on. I guess, Michael, I'll start with you because you've covered it this week. What are your thoughts on this whole Audacity thing or how do we unwind this web? Well, it's that's a very interesting way of putting it. Uh, this is a, a situation that is very complicated. And I think that the, the issue that we have is not necessarily the fact that uh, people were you know, bothered by this instance of what's happened, but because there's been multiple instances. So like originally when Muse Group announced that they were requiring Audacity, like just a less than a week later, there was an announcement that telemetry was being added. And that there was a bit of backlash from that. And they were, they were, it seemed like there was a lot more telemetry than there is now in the privacy policy that they're talking about this time. And um, also that the fact that they were doing it with a partnership with Google and Yandex as far as sending the, where the data goes once they collect it. And that doesn't seem to be used anymore. So there was a little bit of a, you know, a change uh, on that case. And there's, then there was the, the bigger one, I think, that's the most problematic is the, uh, the CLA or the Contributor License Agreement. Uh, that part is a, is a bit over the top, and we'll get to that in a bit. But the main thing is that people are, in this situation, talking about the privacy policy changes. And I think that there are some issues with it. Like, for example, the not being able to use it if you're under 13 years old, which is a weird situation. Like, why is that even a thing? Also, why does an audio editor need to have telemetry in some cases? Like, I get why basic system info could be usable because you would know, you know, what kind of operating system is using it the most or what CPUs having uh, issues with loading certain project files or, you know, things like that would be valuable. I think there is a, a value terms in, in some types of telemetry, but the part where it 
collects your IP address. Now they say that they they don't keep it after 24 hours, but if it's only being captured for 24 hours, what's the point of capturing it in the first place? And therefore, why even capture it? It just seems like a like a weird thing to do. And if also if they didn't capture the IP address at all, it wouldn't really be considered personal data in the first place, which wouldn't have to do any of the other additional you know issues with. Uh, classification of different laws and stuff because you wouldn't be collecting any data of any individual at all. So that part to me is weird, but I think that the the whole reason this reaction happened is because it's not the first strike at the plate that Muse Group has had since they acquired Audacity. That's interesting. Now, Noah, on your show, you kind of had an interesting take on the Ask Noah show, which was basically, hey, in the open source world, we have a solution for problems like this. It's called forking. We fork it and mm-hmm. we're good to go. This is the power of open source. But I want to ask you a challenge here because I was talking to some developers this week. And while, yes, you can fork it as is, Audacity is a particularly very complex program. And so just simply going out there and creating a fork of the project may not be as simple as it sounds. What are your thoughts after uh, Tuesday's show? Have you heard any new news? Do you have any different thoughts on it? Or is it still? Let's just fork it. This is what we do. My point there was to to something to, to to kind of recap or summarize my point was that the licensing of open source largely prevents a large corporation or large company from coming in and taking control of a project because there is a method of escalation and there is another way. Is it going? Would it be difficult to fork the Audacity project? Absolutely. Can we take the code though and put it under a different name and continue on? Yes. Are there downsides? Absolutely. Um, and in fact, we've seen one of the largest downsides. I think is the branding that comes with that, right? Like you can fork Audacity and you could call it something else, but the vast majority of people out there, they walk around kind of clueless and they, they, they're, most people are familiar with Adobe Audition. And so to get them to think about the open source alternative like uh, Audacity, that's a stretch in and of itself, right? Now you're asking those people to keep up with the nuances of open source. Well, it's the same project, but it's split and it's over here and, and so on and so forth. And so there's a number of projects where this has happened. We've gone OpenOffice to LibreOffice. We've gone from own cloud to next cloud. Uh, and so there's plenty of examples of where this has been successfully done in open source. And indeed, when a company or organization um, begins to encroach on what that project is trying to accomplish, then it is appropriate and it is successful for them to fork or move over somewhere else. What I would like to see happen with the Muse Group is I would like to see them respond to the open source criticism that they've received and say, hey, we became the stewards of this project. It's not our project. We didn't create it. We didn't fund it. We didn't build it. It, it, it is a product of the community by a lot of very talented developers that gave of their time and their energy and their money to put this product on the market to the point that it is one of the most successful open source tools. Uh, I've interviewed I've, I've interviewed and talked to a lot of people that don't even work inside of Linux or open source uh, specific communities, and they're using Audacity yeah, because it's absolutely. such a good tool. It's a lean, yeah. mean, cutting machine. And so what I would like to see the Muse Group do is to take a step back and say, okay, let's ask ourselves, let's put our critical thinking caps on and really ask ourselves, is there, a, is there an absolutely ne- necessary reason that we have to take an audio program that really doesn't have any n- online functionality and we need to incorporate incorporate network functionality into it so that we can collect these metrics so that we can get user feedback because we don't believe that we're getting that feedback in other ways 
And on top of that, we think that there's a risk in what we're doing to letting people under the age of 13 use this software. I would ask that we critically analyze those questions, think real hard about what it is, what our motives are, what we're trying to do with the project, and then ask, is that in the same nature of what Audacity set out to do? Because if it's not, then we're not being good stewards of that project and we should let somebody else handle it. And if we do understand that, that does click with us. We do say, yeah, absolutely. This is why then we need to do a better job of communicating that to people and saying, here's why we're introducing these features. Here's what we hope to accomplish. Here's why that's in the best interest of the project, best interest of the users. And here's how it ultimately serves you, the community and the users of this software. That's the response I would like to see from Muse. It doesn't seem like the response we're going to get. Yeah, I mean, the good news is they are coming back and kind of backpedaling a little bit. So maybe they'll get there. Maybe they'll listen to this and backpedal some more and, and kind of put their critical thinking cap, I haven't heard that one in a while, uh, back on and and see what they could come up with. But, you know, I was thinking about this because I was looking at the developers posts and from, they, they mentioned specifically, hey, you guys talk about this privacy stuff, but, you, but meanwhile, you're using Mozilla Firefox, which is opt-out privacy tele- telemetry built in when you install it, right? They said they mentioned Visual Basic Studio, which also has the same thing that we use a lot in Linux. And they basically stated that a lot of software now that's in the audio space or anywhere else, their competitors, if you will, are all able to gather information about basic usage, CPUs, IP addresses, those type of things, and that they're severely behind because they can't grab any telemetry in this realm. So let's take that Mm -hmm. for a moment and say that there's some truth to that. What it made me start thinking about is what is actually the solution? Because they're right. Firefox by default has telemetry turned on when you install it and you have to go and opt out of it. And well, a lot of applications. Be clear the now difference coming, between is, is non-personal data collection versus true, but it, number it's still one there. and number two, it requ- there is there is a there is an expectation when I launch my web browser that I'm going to connect to the internet, right? There is not the same expectation that when I launch my local audio editor on my local computer to edit files that are stored on my computer, that that's going to reach out to the internet. Yeah. There's well, Visual Basic Studio would be a you know an IDE. There's no reason. Oh, the for Microsoft. It. So that's the bar. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just giving wow. you their opinion. So mm-hmm. it got me thinking, though, Mozilla does it right, because like Michael said, they're not grabbing that personal information. So shouldn't we, instead of having this kind of battle over and over again with different software, because I don't think it's going to end. I think more and more software is going to have corporate interest in it. I think more in the open source world. I think more and more we're going to see them wanting to turn on some type of telemetry to understand usage and things like that, that we set a standard of this is how you go about doing privacy, getting some non-personal data so you can understand your product in the open source world that we as a community accept and anything over that bar or that line is kind of thrown out because it doesn't seem like these companies know where that line or bar is. Mm -hmm. They really thought, I think, that they were going to throw this out there. Nobody was going to notice or care because to them, it was kind of non-consequential and then everybody freaked out. Is Is there a... Is there an option in the community to go out and build that? Is there a foundation that would run something like that? Heck, even Mozilla to say, here are the principles of privacy. You can put this type of telemetry in, but it has to go through these kind of services and run this way and only capture this kind of data. And it's acceptable. I think there are a few foundations and stuff like, you know, EFF or, or SPI or something like that could be, you know, involved in it. I think that your idea is very interesting because I mean, like just real quick, I said it earlier, but 
not all telemetry is bad. You can do it properly. You and even you can even do opt out properly. And I know that that's a lot of people are going to completely disagree with that. <laughs> but if as long as the opt out is related to data that is not identifiable in any way and anything that is potentially identifiable is un- or pseudonymized to make it where it's not actually retrievable to anyone individually, that would make it very uh, in my opinion, a completely reasonable way of doing it, even with an opt-out. And also with an opt-out, you even get more information about how many people opted out versus an opt-in where you wouldn't be able to you know, see anyone not choose something. So it's like you're tracking the lack of something is very difficult. And that's why I think an opt-out is actually a valuable thing to have if it is done right. Now, by doing it right would be no personal data whatsoever, especially for an application like Audacity, where it's an audio editor, and there is no seemingly valuable reason to do such a thing for the user. I mean, maybe this is more of like a phase one. So like in the future, they make changes where they take even more data somehow. Uh, Like, for example, uh, you know, setting up these cloud services they talked about. Maybe the cloud services ask for more details and they associate your account with your information and all that sort of stuff. Maybe that's a thing that they're trying to do at some point. Who knows? But there are concerns that it could be, you know, I don't like the idea of a slippery slope argument, but it does seem like this could be a, you know, a prime situation of, you know, maybe they're not doing it as bad. Like, I also want to be clear that the th- people have said that this is spyware and this is not spyware. No. It is, it is sketchy. Sure. It's weird. Sure. The way that they listed the law enforcement requests you know, being, you know, sending them data that way, that's weird. And why would that even be a thing for an audio editor is understandably odd for people. But it's not necess- it's not spyware. It doesn't make it spyware just because they collect any kind of data. I mean, I've seen people say that telemetry of any kind is too much and unacceptable. And that, that mm-hmm. I disagree with that. But it does matter how it is handled. And I don't think that the Muse group is handling it very well, especially since is the, this is the third time that they've had a situation in two months. Yeah. And that's the worrisome for me, thing for me. I, you know, honestly really don't think Muse group is using the telemetry for ill will. And I don't, I don't think any of us think that they are trying to use this for ill will. <laughs> and they have stated in the past it was just for improving user experience, like tracking bugs, much like Canonical does with Ubuntu. You remember when they started uh, tracking, doing the telemetry when you, you know, loaded uh, Ubuntu that, you know, that was a disrupt in the community too. And they, they had uh, changed that to clearly state what they were collecting. Well, no, that, that, that's the different thing is Ubuntu was, uh, Ubuntu is a great example of doing it right. They yeah, they were co- doing it right. They were, they were taking the data and they were doing it opt out, but they were doing it yes. for the purpose of when you opt out, it sent a message saying this particular install opt out with no identifiable information whatsoever. The IP was not tracked or anything like that. And, they, and when yeah. you did opt in to send data, it would tell you with a link exactly what was being sent. So yeah. that is a good way of doing it. And also the way that uh, Mozilla does it is a good way of doing it. They, they only take data. They tell you up front when you install it, do you want to share this information? And they, tell, and they show you the data that is exactly what is being sent. And it is, it is a, a pseudonymized if it needs to be. And it's not personal identifying at all. That's the great way of doing it. And yeah. Not that, tracking IP data. Yeah. <laughs> and the part that, the part that <laughs> bothered me when I read this response, because the first part says, the privacy policy said user country based on IP. That's fine. But then their response to like mitigate the reaction was 
oh, we only track the IP for 24 hours. Mm-hmm. But, you, but your which other part doesn't say yeah. which, basically yeah. me, which basically means if they have any failure in the system, it becomes leaked, right? So 24 hours, 10 hours, why send it at all, right? right like exactly. you already crossed over the line. You're saying we're just going to hang out at the line just for a little bit and then we'll step back over. Mm-hmm. We're just going to hang out at the line. That's it. <laughs> no, we're going to hang out a- over the line. I think it's a fair point. I think it's fair that the community is frustrated by this. I'm happy. I think some people obviously have gone overboard, but ultimately I think most Mm -hmm. people's hearts in the right place, which is we want to protect the very foundations of Linux. And one of those fine foundations is privacy and security. And this is a very beloved project. One of my favorite projects, honestly, in the open source world. And it's sad to see that a company is so disconnected from the community that they would do this. But I go back again to saying that's why I think we need to set a standard for this type of thing of how do you I love how it. do you collect data within the Linux open source world ethically? Yeah. These are the things that you can do if you want to enable that. And these are the steps you take. And if a company does that, then the community at I, large says, okay, I, 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 can, I can help you with, we can hash that out in five seconds, Ryan. Here it is. Yeah. Right? <laughs> ask permission, ask permission, be clear with what you want. By the way, ask permission. That's it. Well, I think, it a little, I think the standards need to be a little bit more specific, but I do no, like not your really. approach. <laughs> think about this, right? Think about this. If, if all they did was roll out and say, hey, here, here's what we want to collect. Do you agree? Yes or no? If they, if that's all they did, regardless of the the thirteen year old or less, and and the mm-hmm. and the keeping the IP and stuff like that, if all they had done is said, is said, here's what we want to collect. Do you agree? Yes or no? Nobody would have cared. I mean, we might that's, have a conversation. I, we I, might I'm going to have to disagree like, with uh, that because of the fact that too. Audacity is 100 percent in that position. You just said it'd be okay. Because they're not though. They are they're because in, no, 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 it is opt in. All of the data is opt in. Even the it, even the software the, that comes with the data, it is opt in. in the terms- data is opt in, but the the being upfront about what was being collected. You know how far I had to dig to find that the networking compilation was the networking stack is turned off. All the other features are turned on by default, so it's not actually sending anything. But it's almost like they're kind of setting it up to send something down in the. In the yeah, yeah. Nothing about that is here's what we'd like to collect. Do you consent? Yes or no. And then continue on. That's that. It's the antithesis of that. It's it's everything is is opaque and vague, and we're not real sure. They are not even. There's not even a real clear answer on what information they're storing or for how long, because they say they sure. take the IP address and then they're anonymizing it, but it's not anonymized for 24 hours. I, I think you're way oversimplifying how this works. You know, if you if you look into other applications, you've got like for instance, Apple is finding 96% of all their users are opting out. When we had Canonical on, they had the same problem that most people were unchecking that box so they're not getting any data. The whole idea is to yep. get data, but get it ethically. No, that's and, that's where we disagree then, Ryan. Be very, that's very what, clear. That, we need to have standards. And I think that's the fix. Not a five-second yeah. standard, but clear that, standards of this is how you do it. So that's where we disagree then. I don't agree that the, the goal is to get data. I think that is a tertiary goal, not even a secondary goal. I think the go- the first goal is to serve your users and build the software well. Secondary to that, or maybe tertiary to that, is to gather data, a- a- automatic data, that because we're not getting the information directly from the user. The reality is the thing that, that users care about, people are not stupid. You don't have to lead people. You don't have to force somebody to drink the water from the well. You just have to show them where the well is. If there's a problem with the software, 
after, you'll hear about it. You'll hear about it in the forums. You'll hear about it on Twitter. You'll hear about it in issue requests. And so this idea that if we don't collect data, that somehow we won't be in tune with our users or understand where the problems are, or how many insulate, it's just silly. I, I don't agree with that at all. Um, and But then moving from that is how do we constructively But how much software build? do you develop? How much software? Well, yeah, at AltaSpeed, we have a number of different software. What I'm saying that is that the every company that goes and actually develops software that the mainstream's out there using wants some form of data collection. There, there's yes, a, because there's a it, why is that right? Here, it, Noah, it, that you're ignoring, which is all these companies are trying to get from Canonical, from Red Hat to all of them are trying to get some source of data. And I'm saying there needs to be a standard for collecting that data so you meet said, okay, that so, need because the way it's working before hasn't worked. I've been on your side of the fence and I used to agree so, with you hundred percent, but I'm starting to realize that every company is asking for the same thing. So let's set a standard for it. So let me ask you this. Do you think that you can build quality software that serves the user's needs and delivers quality software without collecting on uh, without collecting automatic data? I Absolutely. Believe that that's possible. possible. Okay. So yes. if, if that's possible and you're primarily targeting a group of people who by their very nature of using open source software to begin with, it's because they value security and privacy and those kinds of things. Again, if you want to get into the weeds on what these standards are, we're never going to agree. Nobody, we're all not going to agree on what the standards are. So the, the, if, if you're going to try to say, hey, universally, we want all of these companies who have different values and different goals and different sizes and different budgets, and we want them all to conform to one simple thing. You can't have it Nietzsche in the woods. You have to give some basic guidelines. And the idea that, hey, communicate clearly with what you want to collect, communicate why you want to collect it, and Welcome then ask permission the up front. Let me finish. Ask permission <laughs> up front. If you can get those three things, all of the, what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to say is, all the rest of the things that I think you think need to be spelled out ahead of time will naturally be fleshed out by answering those simple three questions or at least getting people on board with those simple three I questions. I think those simple three questions are a great start. I agree there. Yep. Yeah. yeah, it's a great start. I, I think I, I love the idea of, of maybe, you know, having some uh, different organizations, preferably multiple organizations like the OASIS standards, the uh, EFF, the SPI, you know, other organizations to collectively do an effort to make this kind of initiative because it would allow uh, so many people being involved in making sure that they're not, you know, missing important key things. And I think the most commonly would suggest the thing would be no personal data and anything that would associate to personal data, like the GP GDPR associates IP addresses as a, as a personal data. And, you know, that's the only reason that, the audacity stuff is even classified as a personal data thing. And the, that's, that's something that I think would be a valuable. I think the suggestion is great. I think it would be very valuable for, you know, software, especially the open source thing to have it if they need it, they don't always need it, of course, but it does, there are some benefits to it anyway. You don't need it, but it would be helpful in some cases. Otherwise the developers are guessing and hoping that they're right and that sort of stuff. And then getting Real reactions quick on after, this, Michael, you know, we went a little long on on that part of the discussion. I know you mentioned the CL, the uh, contributor this. agreement. Real quick, this thing's a mess. This is a mess all over the place. Can you touch on this and then we'll move on? Yeah. Okay. So the CLA, the thing that bothers me about this is that it 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 asks for a lot of control. For you know, they're not trying to take over the copyright control. That they they spe they stated that. But they are talking about giving them like a perpetual permission to do uh, relicensing and sublicensing, and that kind of thing is something that bothers me because it's allowing them to do more 
than what their react their response to it is because people had a negative reaction to that and the response was well we wanted to update GPL v2 to v3 well you can do that without a CLA you don't you can just request people to upgrade it to that then they also said well we want to be able to you know put it on platforms that are not compatible with the GPL and that sort of stuff and the same thing happened with VLC. They were on the iOS platform and were knocked off because it what they were using GPL and they were not compatible. Their fix was that was like, well, let's just add another license that is compatible and we can use that to be on those platforms, such as the MPL, which is li- which is the Mozilla public license, and it is compatible with those kinds of platforms. So they just did that. So. Most and also the thing that uh, the cloud services, there was the, the, the thing that like all of their reactions typically were, or all the responses from Muse Group were reasons why the CLA was needed, but every single one of those could be done in a different way that didn't require the CLA. So but the like, problem is they're, they're asking directly, as I understand it, some of the developers are upset because they're asking for absolute control of the code that somebody else is contributing to use in any other product, including products that are paid for. That's the big story here, yes, right? That, that is part of it. Yes. It's basically saying that we are able to take your code and use it however we want to, whether that is an open source product or a proprietary product or a proprietary service or any of these kinds of things. And that's not necessarily a bad thing overall, as long as the code is, you know, the, the license is not violated. This is more of like, let us license it however we want to at any point kind of thing because you know there are CLAs that are valuable like I think that that you know there's some CLAs that are ex- extremely um, you know in- intrusive in terms of taking data or not data but like taking control but there's other ones that are doing it much better and I think the Red Hat CLA is a great example they're basically that that one is just to say hey uh, we're you're we're in agreement here saying that the software will always be open source and that's pretty much where it ends. Like that's the core mm-hmm. piece of it. And I think that's a fantastic way of doing a CLA. But this one is like, hey, this is always going to be GPL. Unless we don't want it to be at some point, you know? And that kind of thing is, you know, it's too open-ended. It's too broad. And for me, I think that's what makes it problematic because they're trying to give themselves complete control other than the copyright, because the, the people who develop it still have the rights to do whatever they want with it as well. But the, you know, that's not as useful overall. Still sharing that right, right? Like, yeah. I have the right to do with it, but they have the right to do with it what they want. Right. Look, this whole thing's just a travesty. It's a travesty on one of the greatest open source projects, I think, out there. And it just it really makes me sad. But we look forward to hearing everyone else's comments out there on our forums or in the Element Matrix groups that we're a part of in Destination Linux, go there. We want to hear your voice on this as well because this is a muddy mess. And I assume, well, we already have forks and things out there. Yeah. So we'll see <laughs> there are a few of those. There of are other stuff. tactics to be able to mitigate yeah. these things. But, what you know, it's it's we definitely want to see what your reaction is because it is definitely a, a situation that everybody is at this point probably aware of. But if not, you know, they're very shortly going to be because this is a, I think the biggest problem with this sort of thing is not necessarily the telemetry, not necessarily the CLA, even though that is a problem. Uh, both of those are problems. I, I, I think it's because it's Audacity. Yeah. And because it was, yeah, of software. it's a darling <laughs> of the open source community for 20 yeah. years. The audacity of them to do this. Thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. That's the title of the episode. <laughs> there is one quick thing you can do, though. You can actually turn off the telemetry by default in the configs or just use an older version. There you yeah. go. 
Yeah, you could. I mean, if you get it from your repo, they're probably going to turn it off for you. But at the yeah. same time, that, that doesn't solve the problem. Thinking. That just kind of mitigates yeah. the problem. Right? The, uh, the networking isn't on, so it's not actually sending anything at the moment. No, I mean turning. Yeah. I mean turning it all. Like, it's all, it's not going to be included at all by default with the repos, probably because I think they said it only that their CI uh, creates those builds anyway. Yeah, the official so. build. Yeah. But yeah, we still want to get your information. Let us know in the DLN forum. Be sure to sign up dlnforum.com or in the in the YouTube comments or wherever you want to send us your <laughs> emails. That's good too. Telegram. <laughs> Matrix. Definitely Matrix. That's a good Discord. one. Discord. TikTok. Yes, TikTok. We need to make a dance about why Audacity shouldn't collect data. And we can oh call God. The Oh, God, Michael, stop. Jill, please do gaming quick. Oh boy. Okay. Well, something fun for us to talk about is it's <laughs> penguins. So it's no secret that all of us Linux users love our cuddly, cute penguins. It's true. I've got many here. <laughs> I so need more. This week, <laughs> yeah, I need more. So this week we're featuring a penguin themed game called The Greatest Penguin Heist of All Time. Yay. And this based is on Audacity, somebody stealing the code. Oh, Oh. Were, too you, soon. were you waiting too for soon. that? You... No, it just came to me. <laughs> so this is an early access game with 69 positive reviews so far, which is really wonderful. And on Steam, it describes itself like this. The greatest penguin heist of all time is a physics-based heist game where you and your friends gear up to take on some of the most challenging heist conducted by penguins and penguin history. <laughs> I, I love that's well stated. And there's there's even some of the tools at your disposals are lightsabers, fire extinguisher, extinguishers, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> smoke, <laughs> trip lasers. It's all here. And it, it, it has online co-op for up to four people playing together. So the four of us here can play uh, full character customization and unlockables. Non-linear gameplay allowing for endless replayability. And one of my favorite things, wacky physics-based interactions. <laughs> it actually it uses jelly physics with the penguins, like real movement of a penguin walking or waddling and sliding on the floor. And this can make it quite challenging and comical when you need to push a button to enter a room or slap the other penguins around. It's like a penguin simulator. Yes, <laughs> I think this would be great fun to play in co-op or player versus player and watch Ryan and Michael in a slap fight while me and Noah get all the loot. <laughs> what? You're going to make us fight? You have been challenged, Ryan, I by Jill on my behalf, <laughs> and I agree. Let's do this. You're throwing yeah. the gauntlet down, man. That's right. I'm, I, I am, she's throw, she threw the gauntlet down. I picked it up and then threw it back down just to make sure it's clear. That we're going we're gonna to be penguin slapping or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so the game also has custom item loadouts of tons of items and weapons to pick from. It has lots of maps with different hazards, paths, and potential strategy. And realistic penguin nuding. Newt, newt, like pingu. What does that <laughs> so, mean? I have, I have I no idea what that means. Something. What is nuding? Oh, oh, it's it, that is the famous quote that pingu from the claymation um, animations does he does oh, a newt newt okay. newt newt i didn't know that <laughs> yeah. wow yeah me neither 
that's that's interesting. I saw that I was like, oh, okay, realistic like nudity. <laughs> I was I was happy they put they they put that nice that little Easter egg in there because that's it's one of my favorite animations are the uh, Pingu animations, and it's it's really cool when you you start the game. the The whole atmosphere is just penguins honking and making sounds. So and it's it's really accurate, <laughs> and the movement is accurate. Of course, uh, stealing things. May or may not be accurate. I mean, penguins do need to sometimes steal fish from other animals. <laughs> so you're saying penguins are thieves. Got it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I still think they're cute and cuddly. So this is like Ocean's Elevens, but with penguins. Cute and cuddly. Yeah. And it's 20% <laughs> off right now. So eleven ninety nine, you can pick up your copy of Penguin Heist. Yes. <laughs> Our software spotlight this week is Piper. Piper is a graphical front end to the RGB sort of stuff of a D-Bus daemon tools that lets you configure the DPI, the LEDs, the, and configure buttons on your mouse. Let's say you, per, uh, the reason I said RGB sort of stuff is because that's the most important thing. That's how you get extra frames per it's second true. in your games. So it lets you uh, basically take a fancy uh, Logitech G903, like, like Ryan's showing off, and I want to change the DPI settings <laughs> so you can, you know, you could use Logitech software or you can use Piper and you simply install the GUI and you have access to all kinds of customizations and it supports st- uh, tons of different uh, mice and, st- and to be able to modify the, the buttons and modify. Uh, you can't use the Logitech. You, that should be. That's, you can't unless you're in Windows, which I know you use Windows. So that's probably why you said you can. Use well, I read. I said software, I said can because you put can. And now us, you just changed it in the note saying, "Oh, you can't do it." Because I don't have that type. Those of, of us who use mouse. Linux uh, use Piper. Oh, I see. Yes. I see. I see. Um, <laughs> I just want to clarify. He did type it in with can first. Uh, you know, he's trying to do a ninja edit, and I noticed it anyway. Penguin heist. <laughs> yeah, he was yeah. it. <laughs> but anyway, if you want, if you have a a, a Logitech mouse, or a, I, mean, I think it supports other brands too, doesn't it? Yeah. So if you have, yeah, a, absolutely. If you have a, a, you know, any of the mice that is supported, we'll have a link in the show notes to check it out. It, uh, I'm, I'm really happy to see this because I have a mouse that I have had the same color on it for a very long time, and I'd like to change it up a bit. So I'm going to check out <laughs> Piper myself too. This week in our tip and trick section, we're going to talk about Uname. Now, perhaps you've seen this on and during a tutorial, or you've done the monkey see, monkey do, copy, paste, pasta, you, you, but you don't really understand what that command is doing. And we've always said what separates the uh, the true samurais from the amateurs is understanding what all those flags do, understanding what the commands that you're executing in your terminal are actually doing to your system. So today we're going to talk about Uname. Uname stands for Unix name. And essentially it's a way for you to print out important system information about the install on your computer. And so uh, a very common use would be Uname tack. A, and that's going to print all of the information. But there are a couple of other variables that you can use, a couple other switches that you can use to get different information. So for example, you can do TAC I to print out the hardware platform that you're using. You can use TAC V to tell what kernel version you're using. You can use TAC N and it will spit out the host name of the, of the machine. You can use TAC P to spit out the processor architecture or TAC M to get the machine hardware. Again, we'll have all of these documented for you in the show notes. So if I'm going a little fast, make sure to check out the, the podcast show notes as well as go back and listen to previous editions of our tips and tricks section. We have everything from newbies uh, all the way up to advanced users. So there's something in there for everyone. We invite you to check those out and stay tuned next week for additional tips and tricks. 
So a huge thank you to each and every one of you for watching, by listening. However you do it, we love your faces. And if you want more DL, become a patron like all these beautiful people here behind the scenes in our 590,000 square foot virtual stadium. I mean, it could grow as much as we want. It's a virtual stadium. And you get VIP access to the shows. You get to hang out with the crew and you get unedited versions of the show. But most importantly, you get to mock Michael, which is most patrons' favorite part. Everyone loves to not do that because they always want to focus on Ryan's ridiculousness. And that is just a fantastic way to <laughs> become not a, a patron. It's not listed there. Oh, Regardless okay, if you prefer Mark mocking Michael or Ryan's uh, ridiculousness, you can do all of it live because we stream True. every Sunday live at 1 p.m. Eastern at dealinlive.com. The best part, everyone is invited to watch the recording of Destination Linux each and every week. So we'll look forward to seeing you in the chat. Yeah, and also check out dealinstore.com because there's a lot of great swag there. There's uh, T-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, backpacks. Stickers. Yeah, awesome. And <laughs> one of the cool things about the stickers is that you can get a transparent background sticker to apply it on whatever you want, and it looks great on pretty much everything. So check that out, dealinstore.com, to check out all the great stuff that you can get at our store. And we have so many amazing shows here on the Destination Linux Network. We have the Pseudo Show, the Ask Noah Show, this Week in Linux, the DOS Geek channel. Oh, we're dabbing. Deal and extend. Hardware addicts like my shirt. Gamesphere. And get your Fedora hat on with our latest show, the Fedora Podcast. So go to destinationlinux.network and subscribe to all these shows to keep those penguins marching and the full Monty of Linux and open source awesome sauce. Everybody have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Bye-bye. <laughs> See you next week, everybody. <laughs> or if you're if you're they don't apart. have to see us next week because they can yeah. just turn on their cameras and I mean that's for the edited version, but if you're here live, you know yeah. <laughs> I know I know we have something to talk about. I know you I all mean, have you some have thoughts to. on Audacity. I could see it scrolling while we were talking. <laughs>